The church was born, I mean, the birth pangs mm -hmm. of Acts of the Apostles is incredible. I mean, they're, they are all killed. <laughs> all the superlative apostles are all martyred. So if you don't wanna live the cruciform life, right, then you shouldn't ask for grace because what he'll do is he will go directly to your weakest parts, right? My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. You are not your savior. Jesus didn't look over humanity. He saw you and been like, oh my gosh, how have, oh my me, how have I not had this guy on my team the whole time? I couldn't possibly function without Mike Gormley. Let's give him a nickname, Gomer. Let's do it, let's bring, like, no. <laughs> he loved me. It wasn't that I was perfect and he needed to have me on his side. So he rescued me. Today's sponsor is none other than Ascension. At Ascension, the mission is to present the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith as the path to a fulfilled life and authentic happiness. Ascension shares valuable resources, creates powerful media, and builds communities to answer the longings of the human heart with the transformative power of the gospel. Welcome to the Bible Timeline Show. I'm Jeff Cavins. Good to have you with us once again. Well, we have been on a long journey together, going throughout the entire Bible, starting with the early world and moving on down the line. And here we are in the New Testament. We were looking at the life of Jesus, and now we are in the church. It's the white period on your Bible timeline chart. And uh, we have a, a wonderful guest who's gonna be with us in just a, a minute or so, Mike Gormley. And he's gonna be talking to us about what's going on in this church age. So much is going on. And as I was preparing for this show, I could not help but think of the parallels between what happened in that early church and how they, they started to grow and the problems that they faced and the church today. And basically you have two different, dif different points of contention. You have in this early church that's growing, you have, you have division in the church, but then you also have, you have some real struggles on the outside of the church and what the church is facing. This early church, which is now the body of Christ, it is Jesus in the world, and this church is not going to, you know, after Jesus uh, ascends, this church is not just going to say, okay, let's gather his teaching and let's just study forever. We're just going to study everything he taught forever. No, that wasn't what was going on. You remember the last words from the last period, Jesus said, he said to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, teaching them to do all that I commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so as we enter now into this white period, the, the period of, of uh, the church, which is the Acts of the Apostles, we are now at a place where the baton has been passed to us. And now the church is going to begin to live the life of Jesus. And that means that we're going to do the things that Jesus did. We're going to teach what he taught. We're going to have the mind of Christ. We're going to do the works of Jesus. Well, that's what the book of Acts is all about. And the key is the power of the Holy Spirit. And we may be asking that question, and we'll ask our guests that question today as well. And that is, well, there's a lot of miracles in the Bible, a lot of miracles in the New Testament church. But what about today? Does God move in that way today? Does he move in power through his people? 
or are we mainly maintaining the church rather than being missionaries and going out into the world with the gospel? Mike Gormley, hey. how are you? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thank you for having me. I know that everybody calls you Gomer. I don't know if I can do that. Uh, my because... parents will be very happy. They hate my nickname. <laughs> they hate it. My mom, my mom, the first thing she ever said to me when she found out that people call me Gomer, she's like, I can't remember. Did I, did I name you Gomer? Did I call you that? And I'm like, no, mom, I'm sorry. Where'd yeah. it come from, though? I, I, uh, I, know, I know on your podcast they call you that. Yeah. Yeah. So my last name being Gormley, I had a buddy in high school who only called me Gormley, right? Uh -huh. What's up, Gormley? Kind of had the surfer dude kind of thing. And uh, I left ninth grade, Bishop Kelly Catholic High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Went there in ninth grade. Then I homeschooled myself in 10th grade. And my buddies used to call me up on a payphone. Remember those? And uh, after, after class, and they'd wake me up because I'd sleep in. And they had just gotten out of Bible One, Old Testament. And that's where they first heard the story of Hosea marrying a prostitute named Gomer. So he thought it'd be funny to call me that. Uh -huh. And my dad, for like five years, thought I was nicknamed after Gomer Pyle. So he kind of let it slide. And then uh, <laughs> when I went to Franciscan, there were 500 Michaels, but there was only one Gomer. So that the name stuck. So it's so. Stu but it's Gomer after Hosea's wife. After the prostitute wife of the prophet Hosea. Well, aren't you special? Yeah, yeah. kind of, in many ways, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm going to call you Mike if you don't mind. Uh, if if I called you Gomer, you'd have to call me Sarge. Okay, fair enough. Even now, I now I know that's not part of the story, <laughs> so we won't go there. Hey, tell give us a little background on yourself. Last time I, I touched base with you, you were you're working in parish work, yep. and uh, you're a Franciscan University graduate. Yay. Yeah. Love the school. Yeah. But what have you been up to? Yeah. So uh, I worked for parishes for 17 years. So after graduating Franciscan, and then I went back uh, for a blip and got my graduate degree too. Um, but I've been working for parishes for 17 years in Texas. And uh, I just finished. It's, it's crazy to think since college. Uh, I just stepped out of parish ministry for the first time. 17 years. I'm going to go work for uh, Paradisius Day in their group, That Man Is You, doing parish missions and events and stuff like that. Fantastic. That yeah. must feel a little bit different, though. Oh, it is weird. It yeah. is weird. It is weird because, for instance, uh, at the parish I'm at, I realize that I have no Thursday night classes to teach, no Sunday liturgies for RCIA candidates to come in, mm -hmm. you know, to do these rites that I was always having to be at. And it's just... It's weird. Yeah. It's weird being a parishioner when you were the guy behind the scenes. When I go to mass now, no one stops me and asks me, like, hey, can you get the key to open up the bathroom so we can find the extra paper towels? Like, <laughs> nothing. Like, I go to mass and I just sit there and pray. It's weird. That's neat. Well, <laughs> it sounds like you're at the beginning of a whole new chapter yep. in your life, and I know you're going to do well. Your podcast is is very popular, uh, Every Every Knee Shall Bow. What, yep. what, what kind of things do you focus on? Yeah, so Every Knee Shall Bow was me and my buddy Dave Van Vickle. We wanted to focus on what does it mean to actually evangelize people, all different areas. Uh, what does it mean to bring people into, to actually disciple them as an individual, right? And then as the conversation kind of expanded, we both were working basically the same roles over faith formation in our parishes. And then it became, well, how do we do it? with kids making First Holy Communion? How do we do it for confirmation students? How do we how do we help DREs become more discipleship focused mm -hmm. and less um, just program focused? You know, line them up to the trough, another program, another this, another that. It's like, how, do, how are we making sure that people aren't just members, but they're actually disciples? And mm -hmm. so that's been going on now for years, um, over 200 shows. 
Dave, uh, unfortunately, he lost his beautiful wife, Amber, last February. And so he stepped back from the show. So I felt like I had to uh, make it twice as interesting to keep half the audience, you know, kind of thing. So I did it solo, but Dave's coming back. So uh, that's good. Yeah, we uh, we focus on preaching uh, the gospel, you know, giving people a, a cup of kerygma. Yes, uh, hey, uh, that's uh, clever. Thank you. That's thank clever. You. Steal from the best. <laughs> yeah. In the book of Acts, you've gone through the great adventure yourself. Yeah. Uh, you are a longtime student of it. I know that um, your folks are, your family, and, and uh, the people that you've been working with. Give us kind of a, a little synopsis of the church and the book of Acts. And in light of everywhere we've been in this whole story, what's on our plate now? Yeah. Yeah, so you have the great words of Christ and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that basically sets up the framework for Acts of the Apostles. So first is the ministry in and around Jerusalem with the apostles and then uh, the conflicts that ensue between the church and temple and uh, the various religious authorities and political powers that be and all that. And then uh, as they expand outward throughout Judea, which obviously is the land that kind of that Jerusalem's the capital of, but the the people all around there as the ministry gets larger, and then the expulsion and into Samaria, and then uh, which is just north of there, and as they begin expanding, they are reclaiming the old covenant land of Israel, you know Galilee in the north, all of that. But then through St. Paul's missionary journeys, they go to the ends of the earth, right, the, of what they knew, right, going throughout the Roman Empire. And when you look at Acts and how it's set up, you can you know, see a very beautiful lineage from Luke showing you this is the Jesus the master, right? And then he basically told us, right, you're gonna follow the master. If they treated the master thus, they're gonna treat the servants thus, right? And then Peter stepping into that role and you, you know, in a sense, you feel like the Acts would be almost called the Gospel of Peter and Paul or the Gospel mm -hmm. of the Holy Spirit. When you see that dynamism just get unleashed in the upper room, uh, on Pentecost, the first sermon preached, and then it's off to the races. The The thing that I think people lose sight of in Acts is the profound momentum that happens from Pentecost onwards. It's uh, mm -hmm. uh, the bullet is out of the gun, as it were, right? And um, there's a lot of conflict. There's a lot of growth. There's a lot of amazing things like Pentecost is preached, and then you have mm -hmm. 3,000 that day added to their number, and then you have the conflict with the authorities and constant imprisonments and all this stuff. And it culminates with, uh, in a sense, with Peter kind of handing off literarily the baton to Paul mm -hmm. as Luke paints, you know, these things that Peter did in imitation of Christ. Now Paul is doing, and he's kind of continuing the mission to the Gentiles, mm -hmm. you know? And it's funny because the Acts of the Apostles just ends, right? And I love that. One of the, the key moments of understanding Acts of the Apostles is, is that it just ends because it's now our story. Yeah. Right, we continue the narrative, but seeing that from Jesus to Peter to Paul and and all the other disciples and apostles and stuff, but the early church, the dynamism, the vitality, even the like we were talking, yeah, the the division and the confusion and all this stuff, the persecution that comes from within and from without, yeah. like it's an amazing setting. You see them coming together, and there, it's just a blend, a perfect blend. Even though there's infighting among members yeah. of the church. The theological mosaic that's taking place is beautiful, and it's it's identifiable, and 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 you can see that God is working in so many different ways, even though there are problems in that in that early church. Yeah, so I love it. Yeah, and it's amazing because the problems become the way the church 
has understood, like it is from the struggle that that we see the greater understanding of faith, salvation, mm -hmm. Christ, Old and New Testament, um, and the relationships between the two. Because I, th I think so often when we look at Christ, we see him as this divine superhero type person. And one of my big things is constantly advocating returning to the Gospels. Read the big four. You know, my favorite uh, favorite story about Fulton Sheen when he won an Emmy. Uh, the Archbishop gets up there and he says, I'd like to thank my writing team, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I love that. That's one of my favorite things. But the, the idea of the four Gospels, they're never in need of reform. Jesus' messages never need to be recasted, resold, just reread. Yeah. And turning to the Gospels over and over again, I, you know, for people who've never read the Bible, I tell them, start with Mark. Uh, get get a notebook and just write out like, this is what the words and deeds of Jesus are revealing to me about the love of God. And when you go through it, go when you finish with Mark, start back over with Mark, then go to Luke, then go to John, then go to Matthew, and then just wash, rinse, repeat until you die. It's a good reading plan. Um, <laughs> but in that context of it, you see, you, your mind is attuned to how God was preparing the world through the people of Israel. Right, and all of you know what St. Paul says in, in Romans nine through eleven, the, the great confusing <laughs> three chapters. But he talks about to Israel belongs the oracles and the prophets mm -hmm. and and the covenants, and it's like yeah, this, too many Catholics have no understanding of the old, and when we don't understand the old, when we don't understand Israel, we're not understanding what Christ and the Church is meant to be, and so you have. Um, like through these debates and understandings and through, you know, the first council that the church ever, ever held in um, Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, you have the manifestation of this, of the body of Christ, of the new Israel of God, the, the new household of God, right? The new royal kingdom of priests, right? You have this in this new way. And it's so fascinating because you have now five chapters worth of Gentiles coming into the church, mm -hmm. right? You have Hebrew and Greek-speaking Jews and the conflicts of them entering the church. You have the church's expulsion from temple and synagogue and then how that relates to the church. And then a hand, what, what would you say, maybe five, 10, or 15, 20 years after that, the temple is destroyed? Yeah, 70 AD, yeah. And now you have... The, the, you could say that's the bursting of the old wineskins in a sense. And now the, the new wine has spilled over onto the table of nations, right? So now it's all over. It's covering the earth, right? And before the death, I, I say this with my a lot of my high school students who think Christianity, because they only get Christianity from YouTube videos, is, uh, is nothing but a white European, you know, Eurocentric religion. And I say to them, before the death of the last apostle, the church was a world religion. It was only cut off from... Asia and Africa and all that stuff because of the demographic shifts and the wars and the rise of Islam and all of that. But the the apostolic mission was worldwide. Mm -hmm. India, into the Asian steppe, up into Europe, up into North Africa, Ethiopia, the famous Ethiopian eunuch, like all of this stuff. It was a world. They understood their mission had to be for all because Christ belonged no longer to any one nation. Mm -hmm. Though he was descended of David according to the flesh, St. Paul says in Romans, right? He's for all, Yeah. right? Yeah. So when you see the conflict in that early church, uh, there's two things I want to talk about. One is the works and the miracles that were happening, but the conflicts that were taking place in that early church were solved by the council. Hmm. And the council, you don't... After chapter 15 of Acts, and they solve this problem... We don't really see a lot of fighting about it after that. It's not like they're going to say, no, we want Council 2. 
<laughs> we won council three. They, even though there were more councils after that, obviously. But when Peter spoke, everyone seemed to understand, that's it. Mm-hmm. Has everyone got that? That's it. And, and thank God that Jesus gave keys to Peter mm-hmm. be, for, for things just like this. Yeah. I mean, what would we do? What was the phrase that they use in Acts 15? It pleased us and the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit. Like, oh, okay. I tried to use that line with my wife the other day. It didn't work. It pleases <laughs> us and the Holy Spirit to have steak for dinner. Didn't work. Um, but you think about that, right? How do you resolve church disputes mm-hmm. today? Right? So if me and you are at a church and we have a, a fundamental dispute, how do we resolve it? I had this conversation with a guy uh, on a flight back from Fort, uh, Fort Lauderdale. And he thought I was uh, a seminarian and uh, he had his King James Bible and that's all he had. And he was just reading it, basking in the warm glow of the gospels. And we got into a two and a half hour whispered debate. Uh, it was good fun. But he said this line to me. He said, if my pastor were to stand up and tell me that what I'm going to tell you contradicts what's in this book, he said, I would get up and leave. And I said, you know what? If my pastor said that, you know, Father Tom, if he got up and said that, okay, sure, I would do that. I was like, but here's the deal. Your pastor's never going to say that. He said, no, he won't. And I said, he'll get up there day in and day out and tell you what he thinks that book means. And I said, so what happens if you have a conflict with him? How do you resolve it? Where do you go from there? If you have a, well, I'd pray and I'd fast and we'd come together and we'd discuss it. I said, what if it doesn't get resolved at the end of that? I said, what if you think he's literally contradicting the Bible? Where do you go? Mm-hmm. To whom shall you go? And he goes, well, I, I would have to leave. I, I think I would. I go, do you really think you're in the right? I mean, he went to seminary. He spent years. He knows the Latin, the Greek, the Hebrew, the this, the that, the whatever. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, that's a good point. I go, no, it's not. There's some terrible seminaries out there. <laughs> so I kept, my whole point was to like illustrate like where, is it the man's authority? Is it the authority of some German scholar and commentator? Like when, where does the buck stop? Because it's By always what authority? Yeah. And at the end of the day, it really is an authority issue. And as a Catholic, we don't say we rely on the authority of Rome. We rely on the authority of Christ and his Holy Spirit safeguarding the vicar, right, of Christ and, and the successor of Peter to keep this together, Yeah. right? It's not perfect, but he keeps it together. And you see right after the council, this is what a lot of people don't notice, is after Peter speaks and James speaks and they resolve it by their authority, they write letters and the letters are sent to the churches yeah. and they carry with them this letter to resolve these disputes, okay? Yeah. And they, they did, they had a little compromise. Like Gentiles, you can no longer eat uh, animals, strangled animals or whatever it was. You can't partake of the blood. Like let's show respect to your Jewish brothers. But by and large, right, they, they, it ended and therein shifts until 70 AD, the kind of that debate. Well, we have the papacy in the church, which is a tremendous gift. And if you, if you went down the history of the various popes, yeah. say the last 15 popes, you're going to get some people saying, well, I like this guy. I don't like that guy. I like that guy. I don't like that guy. And, and everybody has these, their natural kind of favorites of them. But, and that's fine. That's human nature. Yeah. But the one thing we can say for sure is that the, the history of the papacy has never, ever, even if there were weaknesses, moral weaknesses with a pope years and years ago, it's never changed the deposit of faith. It's never changed the faith that was handed down to us. And so while you said it's it's not perfect, in some ways, it's perfect. Yeah. You know, in that we have this deposit of faith 
it's a sure foundation because Jesus established this church and because the Holy Spirit is working here in the midst of of all of it. And yeah. and you know there yeah there's a, there's there's problems in the church and and there's there's problems with people, there's problems in relationships, all of that. But the one thing that I just so take uh, I guess I'm joyful about and there's a sense of certitude is this ongoing continuation of Jesus teaching it is not affected by it uh, we can be affected by people and moral failures and so forth, but this deposit of faith is so amazing. And so when, when we do have a question, yeah. we can go to the church, and, and now we've got a tremendous catechism John Paul II introduced. The, recently, the, the Ascension Catechism has become such an amazing tool for people. And I like to— My wife stole mine. Yeah. Oh, she did yeah. she? Oh, yeah. Shall we pray about it? Yeah, we should. We should pray for her. Pray for her. <laughs> I'm going to talk to, uh, <laughs> we'll talk to our producer. She'll get another one maybe. But <gasps> but, but think about it. You've got in that catechism, open it up. Yeah. And I could sit here with you and say, Mike Gormley, I understand you have a few questions. Yes, I do. I have some questions. Let's talk. Yeah. And you can say, here's my question about the church. I can say, Let's look it up. Let's see what the church has said. Let's let's see what this this leadership that the Lord established in the church, what they have to say about it. And if we can agree on that, we can get through anything. Yeah, you know, we can we can get through absolutely anything. Yeah, when you start with the same first principles, you can actually even if you disagree, you can actually get to the same conclusion. Yeah, yeah. and and Saint Paul, like you think of Saint Paul and his conversion, right? zealous more than anyone of his time, of his generation, zealous for the traditions of his fathers, a disciple of the, one of the greatest rabbis in the history of the world, Gamaliel, right? This elite, right, Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless under the law, right? And when he encounters Christ while persecuting Christians who he thought were destroying and diluting Judaism, he has these series of direct revelations from Christ, Mm-hmm. where he receives his gospel. In the book of Galatians, it talks about how I received these, re- I went up by revelation, I received this revelation. Yet even Paul, with all of his revelations, goes and presents his gospel in Jerusalem. And it says that he lays it at the feet of these superlative apostles. And they extend to me the right hand of fellowship, right? And, and they sent me to the Gentiles only to remember the poor, which I was eager to do. And you hear this and it's like, well, you're Paul. Why would you have to lay your you're, gospel? You're a rock star. Yeah, you're the guy. You're the mm-hmm. one that everyone wants their autograph with, right? But even he laid his gospel down that he might not have run in vain mm-hmm. at the feet of, of Kephas, right? At the feet of Peter. And when you think about the implications of that, and in Galatians, he starts off by saying, who has bewitched you? By Who gave you another gospel? Not that there is another gospel, but even if an angel or anyone else preach you a gospel different from me, let them be anathema, right? The, the, the solace that I take from that is exactly what you said. How, there's a there's hundred different versions of the gospel that's out there and that, that denominations are built on, you know, movements and ministries mm-hmm. and missionary appeals and all these things are built on. But how do I know I have this one that St. Paul says that even if an angel should teach you a different gospel, this is the one you're to hold to, mm-hmm. right? And that is the role of the magisterium, of the, of the papacy, of the keys, like to give us 
the sure foundation so that the church can be the pillar and bulwark of truth. Because for that gentleman on the plane from Fort Lauderdale, he would just go to a different church yeah. or go to a different denomination. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that that's, that was my solution. When I was yeah. 18 years old, I made a decision. Oh, I guess I was 21 at that time that I made a decision that if I can't agree with you, I'll just leave. Or if I was at home at 13 years of age, I would have said to my dad, I'm running away. I don't agree with you. I think I should be able to go to bed at midnight. You know, after all, I'm, I'm seven years old now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if I can't get my way, I might run. I might run, I might run away. And there, as, as it says in the Gospels, when, when Jesus was talking in, the, in the, the bread of life discourse, and a lot of the people said, we can't handle this. Mm-hmm. And he said, where are you going to go? Yeah. And, and, and Peter says, Lord, there's nowhere for us to go. Yeah. You know, or, or, we're, we're here. We're here with you. What about, let's shift gears slightly okay. here. And we're looking at that early church. There's a lot going on in that early church. A lot of, ex- there's these little fights, yeah, sure. But man, there's some tremendous things happening. There's yeah. miracles and, and, and they're, they're raising the dead and they're doing the work of, of Jesus. And that must have been exhilarating to be a part of that and to, to see like when Jesus sent out the 72 and they came back and they said, this works. It's actually working, you know, even yeah. the devils are subject to us. And, and it must have been exciting to see this gospel in the midst of even the, the divisions working out there. And I'm wondering, uh, Mike, is, is this something that is lacking in our day today? Because I hear this from people where they'll say, well, I know that happened in the book of Acts, but I don't see that mm-hmm. in my life. And they come to the, there's two things you can come to a conclusion related to that. Or you can come to two conclusions. One is that wasn't true or there's something wrong with me, mm-hmm. you know? But what about that? This, 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 you know, when people look at that back in the New Testament and say, well, that's not happening in our time. Yeah. Well, my go-to response to that, and I want pushback here if you don't, you don't agree <laughs> with me here, is you don't see faith today like you did back then in certain, in certain measures. Like, obviously, I think the Holy Spirit is still working, but like you have this encounter with apostolic zeal. Like when these people were leaving to follow Christ, they were being excommunicated, not just from their local synagogue, but from their families, right? And Jesus said, you, you know, I didn't come to bring priests, but the sword of division, right? A family of five, he'll separate two from three. Like we have to understand that there is a, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, right? There is the cost of discipleship. Mm-hmm. And I do think today we want cheap and easy grace. I think this is the, the first foundational problem is we think grace is magic, right? When we look at the Bible, we ex- I mean, it, it's funny. When we look at the church, we expect it to be perfect. We expect mm-hmm. the office of Peter to be perfect. We expect our pastors to be perfect and the church people to be perfect and the person who answers the phone to be perfect, right? And when we encounter the imperfection, we balk and we dismiss and we storm off and we discount or whatever. But when you actually read the Acts of the Apostles, the church is not, the, the people in the church, obviously the church is perfect because it's the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, but individual members are, are still overcoming the very sin for which their Savior died, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I see when I look at Acts of the Apostles is a level of boldness and cooperation with the Holy Spirit that I ask myself in prayer, do I have that level? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think of converts like yourself and, you know, Marcus Grodi and, you know, all these people who their stories were, I'm a pastor of a church and I'm convinced 
of Catholicism and the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So I have to leave this whole thing. It's not like you were working for Shell and you, you got to keep your day job, you know? Like these things, they profoundly humble me because it's like the, the level of compromising that is out there because of the, the fear we have with money and family pressures and circumstances. Mm -hmm. I brought a, a, an African man into the church who had to completely falsify all of his information. We made sure that we didn't publish anything, like nothing, bulletin announcements mm -hmm. that this guy was converting because his, his family literally said, if you go to America to go build your company and do all this stuff and you marry a Christian or become one, we will kill you if you come home. Wow. And, and they were like, you know, we love our son, but if you convert, you're dead. And so he would have these meetings and I would just work with him one-on-one. -on -one. And we did his, his confirmation. Um, he was actually baptized in the Holy Land uh, mm. on, a, on a trip that he, a secret trip that he went to the Holy Land. But he was confirmed in the Catholic Church and entered the rite of reception. And he knew that the price of his conversion would be his own life. And there is something about the lived experience of suffering and persecution that makes disciples mm -hmm. ready to be, to step out in bold faith. Yeah. And, and like people ask me, what was the secret ingredient? What was the thing that they were doing? Obviously, you know, cooperation with the Holy Spirit, but there was a self-sacrificial generosity that existed in the apostolic church that today, you know, I mean, like the emperor, um, what's the apostate emperor's name? Justinian. Mm -hmm. He was writing to the pagan priests after Rome had converted to Christianity, basically saying, see how these Christians take care of even our poor. And now we Christians are like, nah, just let the government take care of our poor. And we ignore, and like, there was a, there's a lack of radical self-sacrificial generosity mm -hmm, there. Mm -hmm. That generosity in, in relationship to God, like, okay, God, whatever you will, I will it. I want to do it. You want me to give up everything, walk away from everything, follow you? Okay, amen. You know, you want me to do, like that I feel like is one of these instances because it was, the church was born. I mean, the birth pangs mm -hmm. of Acts of the Apostles is incredible. I mean, they're, they are all killed. <laughs> all the superlative apostles are all martyred, right? Um, yeah. And and Paul, Acts ends with Paul awaiting his trial that will eventually end in his own beheading. What do you think the secret was to that to that early church? What, what can we learn from them as far as that boldness? Uh, because I got to tell you, the people that I talked to, if, if I were a, a Gallup poll, yeah. you know, and getting the information, they're saying to me one-on-one, -on -one, I'd love to live that way. I'd love to live with that zeal. I'd love to, yeah. to have the guts to go and lay hands on the sick and so forth. What's lacking either in our formation or our culture that produces yeah. people who believe some of it, but certainly are not on the playing field the way they were in the book of Acts? Yeah. <sighs> what, what is it? You know, like, think about that. I would love to go do that. I mean, I haven't, and I'm not gonna, but I would love to. And it's like, yeah, I also want to be a spectator. And and I, I want to use the cheat codes in the video games and never have anything cost and just be able to accomplish these great works. But if you don't have humility, mm -hmm. you're not going to take that step forward, right? If you're playing games of us versus them, you're not going to – that, that movement of charity that says this person in front of me is hurting – I need to go talk to them, right? You're not going to do that, right? Right, And I think the, the divisiveness and all that stuff that we're talking about earlier, I think there's a timidity. I think there's a fear of losing comfort. 
right? The, sure. Uh, you know, someone one time said about America um, that we uh, that we changed that um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We substitute the word happiness with the word comfort. Yeah. And and it's true. Like, mm-hmm. I want to be comfortable. I want people to like me. Right. I I don't want to have painful conversations. I don't want to admonish the sinner. I, I want everyone to love me all the time. I am the baby of the family too. So I'm expecting that. Right. And I've had them <laughs> most of my life by that. But, uh, but right. Like that, that step of like, I need to be, to make the first move mm-hmm. out of love for you, mm-hmm. not out of trying to prove something or whatever out of lo- uh, Do I love you enough? to speak these words or to, to say, do you want to pray? Mm-hmm. You know, I think about a conversation you and I had where you were, you were talking about being on guard to like, where is the Holy Spirit in this moment? And I think the story was you were at a, at like a Starbucks or something, you had a coffee shop and some lady said that their mother was sick with, you know, cancer or something. And you just turned around and was like, can I have her name so I can pray for her? Mm-hmm. Right. Like things like that, people don't realize are mountains that have just been moved in their hearts, mm-hmm. right? And we, we're we timid. We're, we do not receive a spirit of timidity to fall back into fear, yeah. St. Paul says. And yet I think, I don't, I don't know, I feel like the, uh, it's, it's, I'm just, that's, that's, I'm gonna be uncomfortable here, you know? And I'm, I am this, I'm totally preaching to myself when I say this, but I see the Holy Spirit moving in ways that are beyond me when I step out in bold faith. Mm-hmm. So it's, wh- why aren't we doing that more? I, or why don't we see it more? I think it's just be- because of a lack of just doing. Right. Doing the works. Yeah. Just we, step out. We need mentors. You know, we, 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 do. Do, we need people that will, yeah. will be examples of it, and they will speak. They will speak out. And, you know, it really comes down to, I, I think that people think, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but I think people think that this is going to become, if we're really going to do what the early church did, there's going to be this movement and I will I will hardly be able to resist being swept up in yeah, it. Yeah, grace and is magic. I, yeah. I will wake up in the morning, I will be laying hands on the sick, people will be rising from the dead around me. <laughs> Who knew this would happen on Thursday, you know? <laughs> and, and it's just not that way. Right. Sooner or later, you have to face the fear of, I know that this isn't the norm. I know that to say something to a woman at Starbucks is not the norm. I know that to say to someone, allow me to pray for you, is not the norm. But we're so comfortable of being in a safe place that we're now uncomfortable. Everywhere else. Everywhere else. And that circle's getting smaller and smaller all Mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. And there's a freedom and there's a joy to that explosion of yeah. I'm free. I'm free in Christ and I'm free to love. And are people going to laugh at me? <laughs> I laugh at myself. Yeah. You know, are they going to make fun of me? Are they going to hit me? Are they? I don't know. But I, all I know is there is such a thrill to be Jesus in the culture. And I think with all my heart, and, I, and you and I were talking earlier, and I didn't expect our conversation to go down this this. Uh, this rabbit hole, as we know, though there's a rabbit in the hole, uh, and, and that is that it is time for the people of God to go from the Bible study to the streets, to go from the pages to the pavement, yeah. and to be Christ. And that is going to require boldness. That will require the Holy Spirit moving in our lives, and we must abandon ourselves to the Holy Spirit. But there's two things that I see are vitally important in this in this period of, of the church, and one of them is grace, mm-hmm. the grace of God. 
another magical substance out there that we don't know but we want, you know? Yeah. And so let's talk about the grace of, of God for a moment in the movement of this early church. And the second thing I want to get around to is I want to talk about speaking the truth in love, mm-hmm. speaking the truth in love. So what about yeah. grace? Yeah. I think for many of us, we think of grace, if we ever think of it at all, as magic, right? If I, I gave my heart to Christ, I did this, I did that, whatever whatever terms we use mm-hmm. to describe something like a conversion or maybe just a realization or a deepening in our faith, we think of grace as this thing that is going to automatically fix me, right? Or fix the people around me or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, so think about praying. Like, oh, I think so and so is sick or so and so has beef with me or whatever, so I'm going to pray about it. And they think that Christ will magically just change the situation. Bippity boppity boop, and it's different, right? And yet when you actually sit at the feet of the master and say, Jesus, teach us about prayer. How does he teach us about prayer? Well, one with the Our Father, where he sets everything in order, and first in terms of you know praying for the things of God first and then asking for your own things. But then within those own things, a large part is forgiving uh, other people's trespasses as I need my sins forgiven and vice versa, right? So the realization that I'm, I'm actually a cause of other people's, maybe their uh, beef with me is not without cause, right? But also it's this sense of, um, I think in, in, this, in this moment, Christ says, right, persistent prayer. Like it's not, it's not magical fairy dust, anything. It's persistence. Yeah. It's the importunate widow, the importunate friend. It's the knocking on the door. It's all of this stuff. And it, I think we don't want that. But grace, what is grace? So the positive side is grace is free. It is undeserved. And it is a gift, and it is a gift of God's own life, mm-hmm. right? We can't earn grace. You can't deserve it. You yeah. can you can dispose yourself to be ready for it, like the farmer who plows his field praying for rain, right? You can be, be ready for it. You can ask God for it. But at the same time, grace is not earned by us in the sense of, you're a good little boy. Here's your quarter of grace, right? Christ, and it, it is given to us through the passion, death, and resurrection, ascension of Jesus. So he is the one from which and towards which grace shapes us. So if you Mm -hmm. don't want to live the cruciform life, right, then you shouldn't ask for grace. Because what he'll do is he will go directly to your weakest parts, right? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So this drive to perfection that is at the heart of the Christian life means to become another Christ, Mm -hmm. right? Conformity to our Lord. And so we're praying for grace in this moment. We are praying for his life to become my life. Yeah. Let me just interject yeah. something that I think is so important because what you're saying, obviously, that's right. That, that is right. We need to become Christ. Um, Paul said to, the, to uh, the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me, delivered himself up for me. This one thing, by the grace of God, to become Christ and to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, that's one thing versus something that I think is is very popular these days, and that is, Mike, look, we've got a Bible here. Th- welcome to the church. I'm going to give you the Bible. Jesus is going to make you the best Mike possible. <laughs> that doesn't sound like the gospel mm. to me, is that Jesus didn't come to make you the best Mike possible. He came to make you a new person mm. and not a, not a, a dung pile that's covered by snow, but a transformed, totally renewed, renewed person. And you, you can't do that without grace. 
You, you, you simply can't do that without, without grace. And so the grace of God becomes so important in the movement of the church. It's by his life, his power. But then when it comes to communicating with each other and communicating with the world, this whole idea of speak the truth in love. We know grace, but speak the truth in yeah. love. Talk about that. Yeah, um, I think it was Cardinal George who said, you don't evangelize what you don't love. Mm -hmm. And that means like, if I haven't shared the gospel with the people that matter most to me in my life, either I don't love them enough or I don't love the Lord them enough. Mm -hmm. And that's something, as Catholics, I'm really good at using guilt trips. That's something that, uh, that has really hit my heart, right? Like, well, do I not love you know, this person enough to share them the with them the gospel? Um, do you know Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller? Mm -hmm. Right, so he's a big atheist, all this stuff. He talks about how at his Vegas show, guy walked out and said, listen, I love the show. This is my third time seeing it, great, whatever. And then he handed him a pocket New Testament. He said, could I have a minute with you to share you the good news? And he was like, absolutely. And he shared him the good news. He said, thank you for doing that. And he talked about it later and he said, if you believe there's a hell and a heaven, and you believe that real people go to hell and real people <laughs> go to heaven, yeah." and you don't share with me what you think will save me from going to hell, you don't love me. He's like, so I, I'm totally fine as long as you're not a jerk about it. Yeah. He's like, that guy was very sweet, very sweet. And I think like, oh man, have I done that with my family? Am I so like, you know, this, yeah. this notion. So how do I speak the truth in love? Well, number one, I, my, my pro tips are don't always look for scenes of moral judgment. Like I find like sometimes people think that means that they're to like be at the airport terminal and just looking for sinners. Like, excuse me, your pants are too short. Excuse me, you're, you know, like just looking <laughs> to like morally harangue people. But I would say the first place you start with the people who already know that you love them, mm -hmm. right? Cause you already have a relationship with them and you're not coming to change the, like who they are, how they act. You're trying to give them Christ. Yeah. Right, like that—that that is a different mindset than I want my adult daughter to stop, uh, you know, living with her boyfriend or you know whatever. It's a totally different thing to say. I want you to have Jesus Christ. I want you to be free of the hells that you're creating right now, right? The hells that will might eventually claim you forever. Like I want to break you free from that. I want to love you into the kingdom, mm -hmm. and that's where I think grace becomes the prime mover. Right, because I'm not viewing you just as a. I'm not trying to like recruit you on right. my team, you know. Notch on my belt. Yeah, got another one. Bam, we're up to ten. How many does Satan have? Oh, thousands. Okay, all right, back to work. Uh, but this idea of like because I love you, and because I love God, I want you two to meet. Right, you'd love them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you'd love them if you got to know them. Yeah, and the grace component. Whenever I like, I have a class that I teach parents on how to bring back their adult children to the faith, right? There's no Pelagianism. It's not like you follow these five steps, it'll magically happen. But the there's that magic word, right? But the idea <laughs> is if you aren't leading with grace, that is through prayer, through sacrifice, through fasting, none of this matters. Go home, you know, go send him a, a you know, a, a self-help thing. Maybe I'll get his life together because you don't care about conversion to Christ. You just care that he's not doing these socially inappropriate circumstances, mm -hmm. right? But if you care about their conversion, then you're gonna lead with prayer because their guardian angel can do more in their heart than I can, 
than my word. People do, do people do this to you all the time? Oh, you gotta talk to my sister. You would be perfect. You could change her heart. She's a heathen, right? People do this to me all the time. If you would just sit down for 10 minutes with my son, with my brother, with yeah, my this. Yeah, you're, you're the one. Yeah, I'm the one. Like I got the magical backstage passes, right? Mm-hmm. Like come, if you need Jesus, I'm, I'm your guy. But the reality is of, you know, the, 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 the words of Ambrose to, um, St. Ambrose to uh, Monica, talk to God more about Augustine and less to Augustine about God. That notion of, uh, of like, it starts on our knees. It starts with prayer. And that grace paves the way because what we want for them is to say yes to the grace, mm-hmm. not to say yes to my top 10 ways to live a better life, yeah. right? Like yeah. the best version of yourself shenanigans. Like that, that, that might wake people up to, oh, there's something greater mm-hmm. than what I was previously living in. Sure. But the grace moment is, oh, but there's a kingdom and there's a king. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I like that. Now, both you and I... Um, uh, Very handsome men. Go on. Be, that goes without saying, but both of us <laughs> do regularly brew up a cup of uh, Keurig Ma, don't we? We do. We, we, do. we do, and we share that with people around, <laughs> around the country. For, for those of us that are not in on our secret, what are we talking about when we say uh, <laughs> they brew up a cup of... Keurig Ma. Yeah, yeah. So Keurigs. You when? Did, how long ago did you come up with that? Wow, it was right after the Ascension. Uh, no, <laughs> I was like, wait a second. Ascension Thursday or Sunday? Just kidding. No, um, it, it was it was a, it was quite a while ago where it I, I was I was stumped on the word Kerygma. Yeah. And I'm one of those guys where I'm not I am not one of the real bright ones, you know? And and so all these Latin words in the Greek and the Hebrew and things, Hebrew is pretty good for me, but all these other languages, my wife is so good at this. My mother-in-law was so good at it. And I'm like, what? And so the professor's talking across the kerygma, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm like, what? Yeah. And so I, le- I learned that the proclamation of the gospel was the kerygma. My mind is always trying to attach other things to it to make it easier to understand. And so I thought, kerygma, keurig, a keurig machine, ma, the mother of evangel. There you go. So when I think of the kerygma, right, Greek word means to proclaim, proclamation, whatever. It's the message of good news in Christ Jesus that we have. And when you think about this, um, I'm a big fan of Frank Sheed. I'm a isn't he good? Oh yeah. my gosh! And the more books that I find, even though sometimes it feels Re- like remind just, our, our our viewing audience who he is. Real yeah, quick. Frank Sheed, brilliant author, speaker, um, was a part of the Catholic Evidence Guild. He's originally Australian, I believe, but spent most of his life in London. Um, uh, just actually going all over the world as a Catholic, as a layman, um, teaching the faith. He wrote wonderful books, Theology for Beginners, Theology and Sanity, To Know Christ Jesus, Map of Life. There are so many amazing books that he did. But he was principally an apologist and evangelist. And he would go to Hyde Park in London mm-hmm. at the height of you know communism and all of this stuff before and after World War II and all of these things. And he would... Um, preach the gospel and he would interact with people and all their objections to Catholicism, uh, you know, shortly after, um, you know, you, shortly after England allowed Catholics to maybe hold office, the Toleration Act, here he is in Hyde Park doing all this stuff and such intense persecution. And, and, but he was, he had a brilliant razor sharp mind, but as he's going around talking to high school students and talking mm-hmm. to religious orders of nuns, he, he made this realization that I thought was so fascinating. He wrote a small booklet called, Are We Really Teaching Religion? And I wrote a paper on it at Franciscan, and I titled my paper, Am I Really Writing a Paper? And I got five points taken off for being flippant. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) I don't have a grudge. Um, 
But uh, no, so are we really teaching religion? He said there's this unifying principle. He said, because a lot of Catholics, if they have catechesis, it's all kind of, all this stuff kind of smushed together. There's a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But it's uh, the union of man with God in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. If you can get people, if, use that principle to harmonize everything, the union of man with God in Christ Jesus. And to me, that is the gospel. The kerygma at, at its most distilled, Hans Urs von Balthasar has this great line, to look upon the divine incarnate crucified love, right? To encounter Christ Jesus and what he is telling you about your life of profound, if we're honest, selfishness, sin, right? All of these mistakes, grudges, failed relationships, like all, all of the things um, that we carry with us that lead us to have shame and guilt, that lead us to commit actions to cover and hide our shame and guilt, all the shenanigans that we humans create. <laughs> Christ Jesus is the answer. Mm -hmm. And he's the answer because without him, we engage, without his justification on that cross and by his resurrection, we engage in games of self-justification, right? Where you try to justify your own actions, justify your own thoughts, justify your, your words that you said out of, you know, and we do this all the time. And I think, you know, part of the divisions in the church today and the divisions among people are these games of self-justification, right? Where, well, I, I'm better than you because I don't believe that, do that, say that, I'm on this side. And what you find is, even in the church, we can concoct these games because we're losing sight of the kerygma, mm -hmm. the basic gospel message yeah. that you are not your savior. Jesus didn't look over humanity. He saw you and been like, oh my gosh, how have, oh my me, how have I not had this guy on my team the whole time? I couldn't possibly function without Mike Gormley. Let's give him a nickname, Gomer. Let's do it. Let's bring, like, no, <laughs> he loved me. It wasn't that I was perfect and he needed to have me on his side. He said he rescued me. Yeah. Yeah. And the kerygma, the, the problem that I see today kind of like institutionally, is we separate, like we talk about Jesus' Savior and God's saving love and his mercy, but we don't really connect it to that wonderful phrase in the catechism, the radical reorientation of one's life, which is on- uh, Repentance. On repentance, on interior penance. And uh, if you go in the catechism and the, and the uh, second part, uh, second section where it goes through the, the, um, the uh, confession, goes to the sacrament of confession, has wonderful article on the interior penance. And that radical reorientation of life is part of what it means to repent. Yeah. And when you see that, like that's what is missing often in the kerygma, yeah. what people are serving. I, I, I'll never forget this priest who said, uh, you know, I've been preaching the gospel. I haven't seen lives change. You know, Sherry Waddell in her book, Forming Tentral Disciples says, you should expect faith when you proclaim the kerygma. I said, well, what are you telling people? And he was like, well, you know, God loves you. God's not judgmental. God doesn't care. He loves you. <laughs> and I was like, so all I'm hearing is you saying, keep on doing you, bro. Yeah. It'll Everything's all, it'll fine. All, it'll it, all explode someday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but oh, what a firework it'll be. No. Uh, so I said, well, when do you tell him to repent? He said, what do you mean? That's so negative. Yeah. Well, I, well see, he, but the thing was, he wasn't that mindset necessarily like, oh, no. I said, well, like, for instance, when I talk and I'm talking about the kerygma, I call out certain sins that maybe people might be struggling with. Yeah. And I talk about how Christ is the answer to this or that sin and that we need to get rid of it. We get rid of it by repenting, renouncing, uh, resolving, like all that stuff. And he looked at me with like, like pale eyes wide open and he just said, I've never done that in my life. 
Yeah, very, very, very common. You know, for the for the the, the sake of knowing what we're talking about with the charisma, you know, the charisma is God loves you and has an amazing plan for your life. Sin has broken the plan. Uh, Jesus loves you so much; He died for your sin, and now He wants you to respond with repentance. What <clears throat> Mike was was saying is a radical reorienting of your life to Jesus. He wants you to be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit to live this life. Join this amazing church, His family, and then go full circle. Number seven: You're going to go out and you're going to share with others. That's the good news. The good news is not what I think it is. The good news is not what Mike thinks it is. The good news is what Jesus said it was, and the early church proclaimed it. And here's the beautiful thing. Maybe I've answered my, my own question on, on the show. And that is, the Holy Spirit confirmed the message. Hmm. And maybe that's why we don't see so much going on today, because how many of us are out there brewing a cup of good news up, you know, for yep. people and sharing the good news? And in order to share the good news, it takes grace. It takes speaking the truth in love, and the Holy Spirit has something to work with there. And so I think that's a great way to sort of wrap this period up with uh, the church starts off and we've been given our command, and sooner or later we're going to have to make up our mind that we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to have to die to ourselves, as you said earlier, humble ourselves and say, Lord, use me. I'll do it. I'm not used to this, but uh, I want to be help me, I'm going to take a step of faith and I'm going to share with with people. Wow, we need that, don't we? We We need it today. We do. We need people to unleash the power of God by just being unafraid to be bold. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jeff Cavins and I'm excited to introduce you to the Ascension app. It contains the full text of the Great Adventure Bible, the full text of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and both the Bible and Catechism in a Year podcasts. The app has special features that make the connections between the Bible and the Catechism crystal clear, like color-coded crosslinks and easy navigation. It also answers nearly 1,000 questions from Bible in a Year listeners about the Bible with videos from myself and others, also audio clips and excerpts from Ascension's popular books. To download the app, simply go to the App Store on your phone and search Ascension. I hope you enjoy it. I enjoy it. Carry it around everywhere I go. Got to ask you, first of yep. all, I'd say you do have a wonderful Bible. It is a nice Bible. Feels feels good in the hand, you know, good typography, <laughs> nice colored layout. I love it. I love it. Mike Gormley in the Bible. What does a day look like? What does a week look like? Yeah. So uh, I do use my Bible pretty aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, I do two. There's three ways that I read the Bible. So in a normal week, uh, this is opened up in my uh, table, kitchen table. I come downstairs around 545-ish, get the coffee, take care of the dog. Around 6 o'clock, I'm sitting down and I'm reading the gospel. And I'm rereading the gospels and I'm rereading the gospels. Mm-hmm. And that's my essentially my morning prayer mm-hmm. is being with the person of Christ. All right. So your favorite character in the Bible. There are uh, over 50 major characters in the Bible and more. <laughs> who, who do you most identify with? Who do I most identify with as a character in the Bible? I wish I could say Peter or Paul because they're like, you know, they're my homeboys, right? Mm-hmm. But uh no, no, I think the character that I most identify with is the prophet Hosea. Really? Honestly. 
And I'm not just because not my nickname is Gomer. Mean. Yeah. No, I when I look at the prophet Hosea, I see a man who's trying and <laughs> who's trying and who has laid upon him the burden of of God's uh of, of the prophecies, right? Of the, the word of God to a people who just don't want to listen. Yeah. And I and yet the news that he offers is both good news and bad news, right? Like the Lord loves you. He will allure you into the desert, and there he will strip you of all your false garments, the adornment of all the nations, your false lovers, but then he will reclothe you, and all this stuff. And it's the the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. Um, Go take your wife, who's the beloved of a paramour, right? And he says, and love her as I love Israel, right? And this... this it, That's wild, isn't it? There's an element of the sharpening of the spousal love and jealousy of Yahweh for Israel yeah. that I didn't realize was his love for my soul. Yeah. And um, it was almost like the Song of Songs, like this beautiful, idyllic, romantic love, all the stuff. Mm-hmm. This is what it looks like. This is what the Song yeah. of Songs looks like when one of them has been unfaithful. And I don't think it's the bridegroom. I think it might be the bride. In this case, it's me, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is almost like, what What does Song of Songs look like when one of the parties has failed? Yeah. And it just, Hosea does it. I mean, can you imagine having children with those kids' names? Mm-hmm. Not my people. Time to come in for supper. Mm-hmm. Right? Can you imagine what that would be like? Like, it's an affront to every one of your neighbors. You had to be like, okay. Or every other day, you married who? <laughs> yeah. For those of you that don't know, Hosea <laughs> spoke, uh, he spoke to the northern nation of Israel. He and Amos were the two principal prophets to the north. And uh, God wanted uh, Hosea to speak to the people who were cheating on God, who they were, they were going after other gods and heart like like a harlot, and so the first thing he says to uh, Hosea is, "Marry a harlot, so that you know what this feels like. You know what I am going through with Israel, and it's the most uh, dramatic prophetic word I can imagine. Where yeah. he's he's not giving them a Bible lesson; he's screaming from the heart. Yeah." Yeah, and I, I always said that if I ever became uh, joined a religious order and, then, and I got to pick my name, <laughs> it would be Father Hosea, not Father Gomer, Father Hosea, because I really do, I'm deeply moved by the love of a God that pursues me in the midst of, not in spite of, but in the midst of my sin. Do you have a life verse? Do you have a favorite verse? Uh, Romans 1.16. Okay. Romans 1.16. For I am, not, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God uh, for all salvation, for the Jew first and the Greek. And that, another, that understanding of shame and the gospel and the ability to preach and to try to live it in this worldly environment, yeah. it, it's not going to unleash the power of God for salvation unless I am not if I operate from a place of shame, I'm not yep. going to be able to proclaim it. Romans 1.16. That's good. Yeah. That's good. You ready for some questions? Oh, let's do it. First one, the first question is from Teresa. And uh, she says, was it okay that after Pentecost, the apostles taught in the temple and synagogues? Was it disrespectful? Well, that's pretty good. That's a good question. I guess she's asking, was it disrespectful to, to teach in the synagogues when it looked like they might be going in a new direction? Yeah, I think uh, the answer is no, it was not disrespectful because they still understood themselves as belonging to the synagogue and the temple. 
that this was this new way of the Lord Jesus was something that was continuing uh, the call of, of, of the Jews um, and being fulfilled in Christ Jesus, which St. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, first would go to the synagogues and then he would take whatever converts he can, they'd beat him and chase him out, and then he would go to the marketplace and, mm-hmm. and then preach the gospel from there. So um, it was absolutely appropriate for them to teach there. Now, that, of course, we all know, came to an end. Uh, they were excommunicated and then the temple, of course, fell. So Right, and, and it kind of uh, points to the fact, too, that uh, they still see their they still see their lives as attached to this this yeah. heritage, you know. Uh, as uh, the, the scriptures say, uh, don't become arrogant. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. And so they still have this this connection th- in the root, you yeah. know, to Israel, the olive tree. Yeah, there. And you could say it comes from this anachronistic view of Christianity is a world religion, Judaism is another competing world religion. So it'd be kind of like, is it disrespectful for me to walk into, you know, a Buddhist temple and just start shouting the gospel? Yeah, that would be that disrespectful. Would be. <laughs> it, today to go to a, a mosque or, or even a synagogue today, yeah. that would be disrespectful. But understanding at that time, they didn't see a separation like we do today. Yeah. So. Yep. Okay. Uh, Leela. Leela asks the question, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, we are told to test everything. How does one do that, to test everything? Mm. And, you know, I think in the context of, like, testing the spirit or testing what you are, are hearing, because a lot of people don't even think that, you know, that they yeah. should, what do I test? How do I do it? Well, uh, that is a really good question. Um, I would say my partial first stab at an answer is, you know, test everything, hold fast to what is good. Understanding that not everything that you receive in this world, right, uh, is is going to be the truth is going to be good, is going to be beautiful, is going to uplift you, is going to build you up into the kingdom. But at the same time, maybe it is. There are plenty of good things in this world that necessarily aren't a part of the church. And I think that um, for us as Christians, you know, you can go out, so let me use a, a kind of a secular example. You can go out and enjoy a good movie and not think that because it's not explicitly Christian, then it's all rubbish, right? Test everything understand and judge it according to the measure of the gospel and hold fast to the good things that are there. Fred asks, I think it is really drastic that Paul had Timothy circumcised before going to evangelize to the Jews. Was this really necessary? Shouldn't Paul have trusted the Holy Spirit to help them evangelize even if Timothy wasn't circumcised? Yeah, rather drastic, huh? So he did. He had... uh, and of course, Timothy had to go along with it, but Timothy... <laughs> well, I think he did have to go along with it. I think yeah. Timothy yeah. did say yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is, again, going back to the conflicts of early Christianity. How Jewish do you have to be? And at one point, that was um, Paul's claim in Galatians. Like, I took, uh, I think it was Titus with us, me and Barnabas, uh, when we went down to meet the superlative apostles in Jerusalem. And even he then wasn't forced to be circumcised. So like, and, and they can testify to this, right? So uh, it is a difficult situation to navigate, right? Especially as Timothy receives this leadership role as a bishop in the early church. Um, so uh, yeah, was it, was it a lack of trust in the Holy Spirit as opposed to a uh, prophetic or, or 
prudential political move on the behalf of Paul. Like, all right, this group over here, you keep complaining. We'll get them circumcised and then stop complaining. Now will you respect his authority? Okay. I, I don't know. I don't know if he, I, I always find it weird, like, to say, well, he, yes, St. Paul, St. Paul should have trusted the Holy Spirit a little bit more. Uh, even though he lost friends over this whole mm-hmm. ordeal, yeah, right. So I don't know. What do you think? Well, I th- you know, uh, you know, Paul talks about earlier. He says that I have become all things to all men, that some might be saved. I think it speaks to both Paul and Timothy's love for mm-hmm. people, and that if this truly is going to be a problem, then. I don't, I don't think that any time you run into a problem where people are, are having a problem with circumcision, and then, you know, it's uh, yeah, 3 Timothy 4.2 says, get circumcised. Yeah. It's not that at all. This is a decision of love that some would be saved and that he is going to do it. Did he have to? No. But it's consistent with Corinthians where, where for example, the food that was was uh, dedicated to idols, offended some people. Right. So Paul tries to take this apart. He says, look, we know these aren't real gods. We know that. But listen, some of the new believers and some of the others, they feel differently about it. Here's what we're going to do. If you've got food that was over there from Aphrodite's temple and you're hungry tonight, you can eat it. It's not a problem. If, 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 if Joe, your friend, who has a problem with this, is coming over, not so much. Yep. You know, the, the, the key is love. And yep. that's why Corinthians is right there smack in the middle of 1 Corinthians 13 of uh, love. And that divisions in the church, uh, sexual problems, uh, meat sacrifice to idols, problems in the liturgy, all these things are solved by love. Mm-hmm. We have to walk in, in love. And so can I have that food? Yes. Joe's over? No. Yeah, isn't Tonight, it amazing? That their version of being pastoral involves me, me out of love, sacrificing for someone else. Right. Whereas now it kind of means loophole. Yeah. Right? Means lo- <laughs> yeah. Or you you need to change. Yeah. Here's yeah. the truth, brother. You need to change yeah. rather than, you know what? Uh, I'll be the one that, yeah. that changes. I'm hoping you can grow. You can grow in Christ. Was Paul a priest? When did he have hands laid on him to become a priest if he was a priest? That's a good question. Well, he was an apostle. Mm-hmm. Right, so he had the fullness of what we call holy order, orders. Uh, all of our bishops are successors to the apostles, so uh, they receive their commission directly from Christ. And this is the important part of Paul's conversion story, right, is by direct revelation from Christ. He says, as one untimely born, right, he was commissioned by Christ to be an apostle, right? Yeah, yeah, no, it's very, very true. You know, when you look at the, at the New Testament priesthood, you have obviously the, you have the, the, the disciples at the Last Supper, and it's typically uh, thought of as the place where the New Testament priesthood was, was born, you yeah. know, at, the, at that Last Supper. But then you got guys like Paul certainly uh, walking in that, in that role. And, as, and that would be a good study sometime, actually, when you're looking at uh, apostle, disciple, um, apostolic authority, priesthood, bishop, Presbyterate. You have all these different names there that yeah. that you should do that Bible study. Oh, okay, let's do it. All right. Okay. Press. Phil asks the question, as we've been reading through these last books of the New Testament, I've been wondering when a lot of these people were canonized. When was the status of sainthood established? Mm, that's a good question. 
It's about a thousand years after the church began. The Roman Catholic Church formalized a process of canonization that we know today. They have, um, uh, I can't remember the exact name of the body, but today, if you are looking at the lives of the saints, sometimes there'll be an asterisk next to their name, and it'll say, before the establishment of the, hmm. whatever, the, the Congregation for the Saints or whatever it's called. And to, to distinguish the relationship between pre and post. And so beforehand, uh, most people were called saints because of their reputation for heroic sanctity, uh, their love of the Lord was known amongst a small local community. And there was some sort of what we call today a cultus or a cult, um, doesn't mean what it means today, but <laughs> a group of people that had devotion to that saint. So usually they were martyrs, someone who lived some sort of heroic uh, demonstration of their faith, that there grew up afterwards a devotion to them. And uh, typically their renown, their reputation is what leads to their the ST period at the beginning of their name. Mm -hmm. It isn't until you get that formal process about a thousand years later, uh, which is about a thousand years ago, that the church um, established, you know, number one, servant of God and venerable and blessed, and then full canonization into sainthood. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's good. Well, wow, I, I, man, this has been good. I, I sure appreciate you coming on the on the show and talking us talking to us about this uh, this period because. Not only have you studied it, but you're living it. You're living, you're living. We're all living in this period because uh, as, as far as I, I could see, the end of the book of Acts doesn't say the end. And, uh, and we, we have been handed that baton now. Yeah. And you're living it and I'm living it and all of our friends joining us are living it as well today. So I would like to just close out. I'd like to ask you if you'd be willing to, to pray and, uh, and close this out and pray for all of our beautiful friends who are watching the show with us today. Nice. Beautiful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. God, the Father of mercies, we bless you, we praise you, we adore you, we sanctify you, we worship you, Lord God. You alone are worthy of our worship and praise and adoration. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Son of David, the Son of God, who entered into this world in the fullness of time, born of a woman, your mother, and our mother Mary. And by your self-offering of love, showed us the very meaning and purpose of life. Lord Jesus, we beg you to send forth the power of your Holy Spirit upon all those who are listening, that we might receive your Spirit with an ardent faith, with a bold faith, with people who have hope in the kingdom more than they trust in their own riches and reputations. They're willing to make big moves for the sake of your love being known by others. Jesus, we trust in you, and in your matchless name we pray. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Nice. Appreciate that very nice. much. Thank you for watching. If you would like to see more amazing content on the Bible, be sure to like and subscribe.